Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday, 16th of November, Andy Brownlee taught two sessions on church history at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy looks at the period of church history from the year 590 AD to the present day. Andy's one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also runs Christchurch Manchester's School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. We're going to look at the, the next period, <coughs> which is from 590 to 1517, which is a longer period in terms of years, but it's a much shorter period in terms of how long I'm going to talk about it. Um, in terms of the title um, for this section, I've entitled it Things Get a Bit Messy. That's pretty accurate, really. Um, things get a pr- bit messy. That, that, that accurately sums up this period. Um, okay, so let's get stuck in. So... Um, So when Constantine, when he made Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, when he made his capital, he made Constantinople his capital, um, a rivalry began between the old capital, Rome, and the new capital, Constantinople. We've kind of talked about this a little bit. Now, this rivalry soon began to divide the church. Uh, What happened is the church in the east of Europe looked to the bishop of Constantinople for leadership, and the church of the west started to look to, to... to the Bishop of Rome or the Pope for the leadership. And tensions grew over the years until in 1054, the church finally split in two. <coughs> the Catholic Church in the west of Europe, ruled by the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and the Orthodox Church in the east, ruled by the Bishop of Constantinople. So this is the first official church split. Up to that point, there'd only been one church, pretty much. The church, that was it. Now there are two. There's the Roman Catholic Church in the kind of west of Europe, and then there's the Orthodox Church in the east. Now the Orthodox Church soon spread to Greece, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Russia, and Romania, and it's still the largest religion in all of these countries today. Now, when it, when it comes to what Orthodox Christians believe, um, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing for us to kind of get our heads around it. But basically, they believe a lot of the same things as we do. A lot of the same things as we do. It just looks much different in kind of worship and practice and how they go about it. Now, <clears throat> their focus. So, I suppose for us as Christians, when it comes to the centrality of what we believe, we're very much focused on the fact that, um, you know, we sin. It's a barrier between us and God. Jesus died on the cross to remove that barrier so we could come into relationship with God. That's how we, we really think about the centrality of, of our faith. But with Orthodox believers, their focus, I mean, they believe that stuff, but their focus very much when it comes to theology is much more on the whole idea of the image of God, of us being made in the image of God. So they believe that we're, as humans, we're made in the image of God. What sin does is it, re- it reduces the image of God within us, makes us look less like God. And, and salvation for the Orthodox believer is kind of like the perfection of the full image of God within us. Okay, so for them, the reason Christ came to earth was to restore the full image of God in us. Which, I mean, we, we do believe stuff about the image of God and being made in the image of God. But for us, it's not often our primary focus. But for them, it is. And for Orthodox believers, what's really important for them is um, images or icons. 
So if you go into the house of an Orthodox believer, in the corner of one of the rooms will be like lots of images of like saints and Jesus and things like that. And they believe these are really important and that they kind of, they're almost like a window between heaven and earth. They have beliefs. So there's a lot of kind of beliefs on the edge. You think, oh, I'm not really sure about that. I'm not really sure about that. But generally, a lot of the stuff that they believe is similar um, to what, what we believe. Now, around this time, uh, the Pope was becoming more and more powerful, <coughs> mainly because he had two powerful weapons at his disposal, at his disposal, disposal that no other political leader was able to use at that time. The Pope's two weapons that he could use that nobody else could use were called excommunication and interdict. Right? An excommunication is basically cutting an individual off from the church, basically saying, you're going to hell. An interdict is the same thing, but for a nation. He can just cut a nation off and say, right, France, you're all going to hell. That's, those were the two weapons that the Pope could use. Okay? Now, one Pope we, we know at this time actually threatened to use interdicts 85 times during his reign against uncooperative kings in his reign. So basically, a, come, a king would come and say something annoying to him, and he'd say, um, you better say sorry, or I'm going to make an interdict against your country. That's pretty much what they did. That's what they started to do. Another pope at this time had this disagreement with Henry IV, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, which essentially is the, the, the ruler of Germany, very powerful secular, very powerful, power, powerful political ruler. And... Um, Basically, um, Henry kind of hit back at the Pope. The Pope kind of, they got in a disagreement and Henry said, oh, you're unfit to be Pope, right? Um, and basically what the Pope did in, in reply was he excommunicated Henry. He says, right, you're no longer part of the church, you're going to hell, right? That's it. Okay, that's one way to trump an argument, isn't it really? Um, so that's what he did. Um, but Henry, at this time, he was put under pressure from his barons, Henry the, the Fourth, And they said, look, you, you can't get excommunicated, like you know, you're the king, like we, we need you to be in the church. So they put so much pressure on him that he had to appear before the Pope. The Pope was in his holiday home in the mountains of Italy, snowing and everything. And Henry appears to him and had to beg him for forgiveness. And um, he, he ended up, he had to get into his barefoot and he, the Pope made him beg for forgiveness for three days. He begged for forgiveness for three days. Okay, this is one of the most powerful political leaders in the world at that time, having to beg the Pope for forgiveness for three days before eventually the Pope says, okay, I forgive you. You can come back into the church. Now that just shows you the power that the Pope had at that time. Huge. Now, by the 1200s, the church and the Pope were now incredibly powerful. The strength of the Pope and the church was strengthened even more at this time by the formalizing of theology of the Catholic Church. So they wrote it all down, they codified it, they formalized it. And one of the key figures in this <coughs> was a guy called Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas' main book is called Summa Theologica. And in it, he formalized the theology of the Catholic Church. So things such as you've got to submit to the Pope if you want to be saved. Um, the treasury of merit, so the idea that like saints do all this good stuff and they don't need it to get into heaven, so you can kind of ask them for some of that to help you get into heaven. I mean, it's not anything we believe today and it's not biblical, but the idea of that, the idea of penance, the idea of purgatory, this whole like middle bit between heaven and earth. Uh, Aquinas, he didn't come up with these ideas, but he helped to formalize them and codify them so that everyone had to believe these things. Not biblical, any of them. But these things had developed over time and he formalized them and made them standard, Catholic, standard belief in the Catholic Church. Now, all this further strengthened the power of the church. 
and the Pope. Okay, now we're going to talk about some war and killing and bloodshed. Who's up for that? Yeah? Enough religion. Let's just do some, let's, let's have a look at some bloodshed and killing. Okay, so around this time, um, Islamic forces were now invading large areas of the Middle East. Now, um, Islam had started in 570 when a guy called Muhammad had this vision. He said he told his wife he had this vision where he was told to write something down. And what he wrote down was the Quran. Quran simply means to recite. Uh, Muhammad was born in Saudi Arabia, um, uh, writes down the Quran. And and, um, people begin to soon follow him. Islam is born and it grows rapidly over the next few centuries through invasion and conquest. And before long, they had taken Israel. They had captured Israel. And this annoyed people in the Christian world. And in 1095, (coughs) in response, the Pope proclaimed a thing called a crusade to go and retake Israel, the Holy Lands, back from the Muslims. And what the Pope did was, you kind of think, really? This is crazy. The Pope said to anybody who takes up arms and goes to the Holy Lands and fights Muslims, I'm going to give you full forgiveness of all your past sins. Like, you think, oh my goodness, like, Jesus does that, not the Pope. But that's what he says, look, if you go, I'll forgive you all your sins. And it's like, what? And I mean, this just shows you just how far the Pope had gone from the teaching of Jesus and the church, really, the, the established church. You know, Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness of sins. But the Pope's saying, you'll kill Muslims, I'll give you forgiveness of sins. It's just the gospel had just disappeared. I mean, it was just... So in 1095, 5,000 knights and infantrymen they go, they capture Jerusalem, and um, after they do that, uh, the Pope needs to keep this whole thing going. He needs money to finance the whole thing. So what he does is he introduces forgiveness for sins, not for going to the Crusades, but just for funding them. You know, so if you just you know, do your give big offering to the Crusade, you get your forgiveness of sins, which makes it even worse. You're like, oh my goodness, how bad is this? So they hold on to Jerusalem for 100 years. Then 100 years later, the Muslims retake Jerusalem. And in response, three kings, three European kings, Frederick of Germany, Richard Richard the Lionheart, which we've all heard of, of England, and Philip of France lead another crusade to retake Jerusalem. Now, it really doesn't go well at all. It's, I think... It could be described as an epic fail, really, I think. What happens is Frederick actually drowns on the way there. Okay, so that's one king down. And Philip and, and Richard argue so much that Philip's like, oh, sack this, I'm going home. So he goes home. So he just leaves Richard there, and Richard fails to take Jerusalem and goes home himself. Ten years later, the Pope sends another crusade to go and take Jerusalem. Now, if you think the previous one was a failure, wait till you hear about this one, Okay. This crusade is just, I mean, complete and utter failure. So what what happens is there's an army, they go and they're on their way to to, um, Israel. Now, what they have to do is they have to go to Venice and they have to get um, the sailors at Venice to transport them to Israel. Now, they get to Venice, and the Venice have put a really high shipping price on transporting them, and they can't afford it. So the Venetians say, well, look, there's this city, there's this town just down the coast that we really hate. We hate these people. It's called Zara, right? And um, if you just go and destroy that town, like it's a Christian town, if you just go and destroy that town, we'll bring you to Israel. So the crusaders are like, super, good deal, let's do it. So they went, they go to this town, obliterate it, destroy it, come back, say, right, great, bring us to Israel. But the Venetians are kind of sneaky. They're like, well, you could go to Israel or 
you could just go and like destroy Constantinople instead. How about that? And Constantinople, Christian city. Why don't you just do that? So the Venetians, I don't know how they did this, but they persuaded the crusaders to go to Constantinople and just destroy it instead. So that's what they did. So they went, destroyed this little Christian town called Zara. Then they went to Constantinople, basically just ravaged and pillaged it and just completely forgot all about going to Israel. And that was it. That was the third crusade. It was a complete, complete disaster. Now, the era of the crusades ended in about 1291 when Acre was the the last stronghold of the Christian nations in the Holy Lands fell to the Muslims. So it was 200 years of just disaster, really. Just complete disaster. The crusades were a complete failure. They didn't win the Holy Holy Land back or stop the advance of Islam, or heal the split between the Catholic and Orthodox churches. The Crusades basically show us the terrible state the church was in back then. The Crusades show us that the church, and and particularly the Pope, had forgotten two very important things. Firstly, Christianity is not about specific geographic places. God lives in each of his followers through the Holy Spirit, not in buildings or in temples. And second thing he'd forgotten was that war and bloodshed are never the way to expand God's kingdom. You know, that comes through evangelism, sharing the good news. The church and the Pope had completely lost sight of this. And I just, the Crusades, it had nothing to do with the gospel. Um, the Crusades were primarily about politics and so-called church leaders abusing their power to lure people into war. The Crusades can definitely go down as one of the darkest periods in church history. Now, as I said, I've classified this era as things get messy, right? And you can see why I've entitled it that, as we've seen from the Crusades. But these were dark times in, in church history, but Jesus and the gospel weren't totally forgotten. There were some little glimmers of hope. One came from a guy called Arnold, um, a guy from Brescia in northern Italy. And he, he called for the church to give up its property, give its wealth away, and returned to the way of the apostles. And he did that himself. But the church decided that this was a bit too radical for them. So they executed him for his beliefs in 1155. Around the same time, a guy called Peter Waldo in France <coughs> gave all his stuff away, translated bits of the Bible into French, and sent followers out into, into the countryside to teach people God's word. And they became known as the Waldenses. And that movement spread across southern France. And what they did, crucially, which was really revolutionary from this, was they started to make scripture their authority. The Bible says that we do it, not just looking for the Pope. Around this time also in Italy, a guy called St. Francis of Assisi also formed a group of preachers like Waldo. And they went around Italy sharing God's word with people too. Now, the power of the Pope reached its height in about the 1200s. But by the 1300s, it was starting to weaken. And we know this because around this time, Philip I of France, the King of France had a power struggle with the Pope. And unlike Henry 200 years earlier, Philip won it, okay? The Pope had to back down. Philip basically wanted to tax the clergy in France, tax all the priests and bishops in France. The Pope said, if you do that, I'm going to excommunicate you, as they had done for quite a while. So what Philip did, and this is, I mean, Philip sent some guys to Rome and went to the Pope, who was, Pope was staying in his holiday home outside Rome. He sent some guys there and just beat the Pope up. And you think, gosh, really? That's what they did. He sent some guys and they just beat the Pope up. 
Now, the Pope actually died a few weeks later. Now, the, the, the roughing up didn't kill him, but he died a few weeks later. And what this showed was that European rulers no longer accepted the Pope's interference in political matters. Okay, things were changing. And this moment came to symbolize the descent of the power of the Pope, just as Henry IV, begging the Pope for forgiveness 200 years earlier, symbolized its ascent. Okay, so the power of the Pope was further weakened. Now, this is, this is one of the, my, my favorite stories. It's there's epic fails and then there's epic fails. This is one of the big ones, okay? The power of the Pope was further weakened in the late 1300s <coughs> through a bit of a mess up because what happened was, for some reason, two popes were appointed at the same time, okay? It was just like, oh my God, how did this happen? So basically what happened is in, um, in April 1378, a new pope was appointed. Now, how popes were appointed back then was there was this group called the College of Cardinals. It was this group of cardinals and they'd get together and they'd, pray and chat and talk and nobody really knew what happened in the room but they'd come out of the room and say the new pope is this so they did that in april they said the new pope is this guy but later that year and this had never happened before they um they just changed their mind they were like ah oh, no uh, we we uh no we don't want this guy's pope so they appointed someone else so um you had this weird situation where you two popes right now it gets even messier right to sort this out <coughs> They needed to have a church council. The problem was, was that church law dictated that only the Pope could call a church council. And nobody could decide on who the Pope was. So the thing they needed to do to sort it out, they couldn't do because, the, the, yeah, the, it was just, yeah. So for 39 years, there were two Popes simultaneously, both saying, I'm the real Pope. No, I'm the real Pope. No, I'm the real Pope. No, I'm the real Pope. So eventually they managed to get a church council and what they did was, um, so they, a church council, they kind of resolved this situation. So what they did was they sacked both popes and appointed a new one, right? The problem was the sacked popes didn't accept this decision and said, no, 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 we're still popes. So this church council that was designed to make two popes into one pope ended with three popes, okay? <laughs> so you now have three popes. It's like, oh my goodness, they must have been tearing their hair out. So they have another church council, sack all three popes and appoint a new pope and they all accept this and it's sorted and it's done. But this whole crazy debacle all weakened the power of the pope. Now to cap this all off, um, in 1492, a guy called Rodrigo Borgia. Now you may have heard of the Borgias. There's a TV series on Netflix. And um, basically, Rodrigo Borgia became pope and he took corruption, immorality, and greed to new levels never seen before in the papacy. Okay, like he made, he made like political leaders look like, you know, super spiritual monks. I mean, he was awful. I mean, it was just, he had no interest in Christianity or anything. Just wanted to make money and get power and prestige. So because of that, that further weakened the Pope because people were thinking, oh my goodness, how can this guy be Pope? So all these things weakened the Pope. Now, as I said, the Middle Ages were a dark time in church history, <coughs> but I'm going to end it on a positive note by telling you about two absolute dudes, okay? These guys were dudes, all right? You get to heaven, give these guys a handshake, okay? Hug or something, right? I'm going to tell you about John Wycliffe and Jan Hus. John Wycliffe's English guy, Jan Hus from the Czech Republic, right? John Wycliffe was an Oxford academic in the, in the late 1300s. 
And what he did was he challenged many of the traditional beliefs of the Catholic Church because he could find no reference for them in the Bible. I think, okay, this is new. People are starting to read their Bibles. Okay, he challenged indulgences. This is basically selling forgiveness of sins. Adoration of saints, you know, praying to saints and all that. <laughs> Treasury of merits, so like using the good from saints to try and get yourself into heaven. He, he, he challenged worship of images and the idea that men needed priests to mediate between them and God. Now, what was revolutionary about John Wycliffe was that he started reading the Bible. Okay, he started reading the Bible. Not many people did that back then. And he used the Bible as his yardstick to judge the church, as opposed to the other way around. That's what people had been doing, using the church to judge the Bible. But he used the Bible to judge the church. Now, he was, very, he was eventually silenced for his radical beliefs. He was silenced academically at Oxford, so he was forbidden to write or teach. So what he did was he turned to the peasants in the local villages, and he got the Bible translated in, into English, and he sent his followers out two by two, preaching the word, and this spread across the English countryside. And these, this, this movement, these people became known as Lollards. They became known as Lollards. Now, Wycliffe, he, he was silenced at Oxford. He wasn't executed for his beliefs because he had some powerful friends who made sure he wasn't going to get killed. But he was definitely silenced for, for uh, uh, academically. Now, someone who was greatly influenced by Wycliffe's writings was Jan Hus, who was the rector of one of the main churches in Prague in the Czech Republic. And he, again, like Wycliffe and preached a lot of similar stuff to Wycliffe, preached against the abuses of the Catholic Church like Wycliffe. And eventually he was pr imprisoned. He was told to give up his beliefs or he'd be burnt at the stake. Um, he'd be burnt and executed. And he refused to do so. So on July the 6th, 1415, he was brought to the place where he's going to be executed. On the way, they led him past a bonfire of his books and his works and his writings. And apparently, he laughed at bystanders and he said, I don't believe the lies they say about me. He just laughed and said, don't believe the lies. So what they'd done to get him convicted was they'd made up a whole load of lies about him to, to, get, him, to get him killed. He was asked one more time to recant uh, or give up his belief. And his response was this, great response. <coughs> he says, God is my witness. The evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I gladly die. So they burnt him to death. And that was the end of Jan Hus. Now, after all the mess of the Middle Ages, we begin to see these glimmers of hope. John Wycliffe, Jan Hus. The Bible and the gospel are starting to be rediscovered. Change is coming and it's about to speed up dramatically because of a new invention. Now in, in 1439, a guy called Johannes Gutenberg invented, anyone know? The printing press. Yeah, the printing press is probably one of the most important inventions in history. Forget church history, in history. It's up there with the internet. You know, it's things like that. It's, it's that important. It quite simply changed the world as we know it, okay? So basically, before the printing press, if you wanted to get a, a document kind of out there into the world, if you wanted to publish a book, for example, what you had to do is you had to get someone to hand copy it, which took ages, which meant you really couldn't get many copies out. Okay? After the printing press, you could just mass produce them. You could just write something, take it to a printing press, I'll have 30,000 copies, please. 
done out. Right? It changed, it transformed how quickly you could disseminate information. Now, not long after the printing press was invented, a guy called Martin Luther came on the scene. Now, remember that name. Because Martin Luther is one of the most important figures in history. Never mind church history. He's probably the most important person you will learn about today. Now, he, he believed very similar things to Jan Hus and John Wycliffe. But unlike them, he managed to transform the entire European church beyond recognition and changed the face of Christendom forever through something he, called, he started called the Reformation. Now, one of the reasons he succeeded where Wycliffe and Huss didn't was because he came after the invention of the printing press, whereas they came before it. So when John Wycliffe wrote stuff, he could get some people to copy it. He might get 20, 30 copies done. He disseminates those, easy for the authorities to come, find out where those 20, 30 copies went to, get them, burn them, done, ideas gone. With Luther, it was different. Luther could write something down, take it to the printing press and say, I'll have 20,000 copies, please. And can you just deliver them to every city in the whole of Europe? Impossible for the authorities to track all that down. That's the difference that the printing press made. And that's why the printing press is such a significant invention. Okay, so that concludes the Middle Ages period of church history from 590 to 1517. Um, why don't we just uh, take a minute on your tables, discuss what, I don't know, what you find interesting about that, what you find weird, what you learned, anything. Just, just have a discussion on your tables for a minute. Okay, everyone, we're, we're just going to keep going for another seven or eight minutes, and then we'll have our coffee break. As I said, that concludes the Middle Ages period of church history from 1590 to 1517. Next, we're going to look at the period 1517 to 1648, which is most commonly known as the Reformation. We're just going to get, go, yeah, six or seven minutes into this, then we'll have a break. <coughs> and basically what happens in this period is the rediscovery of the authority of the Bible, kind of the completion of the kind of the glimmers of hope that we've kind of seen just before. Now, the Reformation was a... A movement started by Martin Luther, we've mentioned it before, um, to reform the abuses of the Catholic Church. Hence why it's called the Reformation, reforming the abuses of the Catholic Church. Now, Luther was born in Germany in uh, 1483. And when he was 22, he got caught in a really bad thunderstorm. And he prayed out to St. Anne, because that's what he did back then. They prayed out to saints and things. He says, save me and I'll become a monk. Now, the thunderstorm didn't kill him, so he became a monk. And uh, as a monk, he was very severe on himself. He was really hard. He was like, I've got to try not to sin, try not to sin, try not to sin. And he always felt kind of condemned and a bit down and kind of hard on himself and unworthy before God, really. Um, but then uh, around the time, he, he started doing something that very few people did back then. He started reading the Bible, a bit like Wycliffe and Jan Hus. And when he was 32, while reading the Bible, he'd been a monk for 10 years, he had this incredible kind of light bulb moment kind of Holy Spirit moment. He, he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther said, after reading that, he said, I felt myself to have been reborn 
And, and, and I felt that I'd gone through the open doors into paradise. So many people say, look, this is almost like his conversion experience. <clears throat> and what he did was he realized in that moment that justification, so being made right with God, was by faith alone. Not by faith and good works together <laughs> as the Catholic Church had been teaching up to that point and for the last thousand years. It was by faith alone. He had this light bulb moment. Now, two years later, in 1517, the Pope needed more money to build his new big church in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, the, the big thing that's there now. It's the biggest church in the world. So he was building this at that time. He was running out of money. He needed more money. So he sent a guy called Johann Tetzel around Germany to, to, to sell these things called indulgences to try and make more money to build this cathedral. Now, indulgences were certificates that you could buy which guaranteed that your sins would be forgiven. Okay, And you're thinking, really? Are we... Still selling, you know, forgiveness of sins. Have we not learned this? Um, you know, so that's what, that's what he was doing. Now, Luther, who was now a theology professor at the University of Wittenberg, a city in Germany, he was horrified at this. He's like, I cannot believe this is happening. He's like, the, like the church has like descended to a new low. Like it has taken the forgiveness of sins, something that's supposed to be a free gift from Jesus, and it's selling it to people for money. Like, oh my goodness, what's going on? So in response... Luther wrote what's famously become known as his 95 Thesis. And what he does is he writes these and he nails them to the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg, where he was a professor. Now, there's nothing significant about it going on the church door. The church door was just the normal notice board for the university. Okay, so it's just the normal thing to do. If you wanted to put, make a notice, you put it on there. Um, his 95 theses were basically 95 statements he made condemning the excesses and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, and especially the practice of asking for money for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Luther, Luther believed, as we do, that forgiveness of sins only comes as a free gift through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, his 95 theses were quickly reproduced by the printing press, spread across Europe, and started the Reformation. And he then wrote a series of further pamphlets, which highlighted many more abuses within the Catholic Church. These two were reproduced widely by the printing press. Now, the Catholic Church <coughs> tried to get him to back down, but he refused to do so. So in 1521, they declared him a heretic and excommunicated him from the church. What did Luther do with the sheet of paper that said he was a heretic? He had a bonfire with his mates and burnt it. He had a party with his mates and burnt it. That was the defiance. He's like, no, this means nothing. Okay? He burnt it. That same year, Luther again refused to back down over his writings before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Germany. Again, the kind of leader of Germany. And at that conference, <coughs> he famously says, here I stand, I can do no other. Basically saying, look, you want to kill me over this? Kill me. But I'm not changing. In response, Charles V declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic and gave permission for anyone to kill him without consequence. So he basically said, look, if you walk out there, Luther, and if someone just murders you in cold blood, we're not going to do anything about it, because we want you dead anyway. That's what he says. Now, it looked like Luther was going to be executed there and then, but a German prince who was there, who liked Luther, abducted him and hid him away in one of his castles for a year. He gave him a fake name, Junker George was his name, or Lord George, and put him in this castle for a year with the hope of just like, well, let's just, let's have things quiet down a little bit, okay? Let's keep this guy alive. We need him alive. 
While there, this, 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 um, prince, this, this prince who liked Luther provided them with some writing materials, and Luther translated the New Testament into German, which was a hugely significant thing. Because up to that point, the Bible was only available in Latin. And normal people couldn't read Latin, so only the clergy could read it, and they didn't really read it that often. So Luther, Luther translating the Bible into German meant that common people could now read the Bible for the first time. Massively significant. Last summer, my holidays, Elizabeth and I, we drove up to this castle, Wartburg Castle in Germany, and we went there and we saw the little room where Luther translated the Bible into the New Testament. I was nerding out major time. I was like, whoa! I was taking pictures of everything, holes in the wall and everything. All the other tourists were like, what is this guy on? But hugely significant what he did here. Um, after spending a year translating the New Testament, he returns to Wittenberg and he set about a series of reforms. <coughs> so he abolished bishops. He'd done away with celibacy of the priesthood. So this is something that had started to develop in around the 3400s. It became standard church practice by the 11th century. And Luther just says, look, I don't see it in the Bible. Get rid of it. And what he did was he actually married. He took a wife, married, had kids. He also changed the way communion was done. He gave people wine as well as bread. Up to that point, only the priests could have wine and bread. People just got bread. But he gave people wine and bread. He shifted the emphasis also in church services away from the mass, from communion. He shifted the emphasis to the preaching of God's word. Now these reforms and many others spread across Europe. And in 1529... Charles V, who <coughs> was this German leader who really didn't like Luther, put pressure on the princes of Germany to crack down on Lutheran teaching. Now, many of the preachers who now, now followed Luther in his teachings, they protested against being told to crack down on Luther, which is where we first get the term Protestant from. They protested against being told to crack down on Luther. And soon this name Protestant came to refer to anyone who followed Luther's teaching or those of the other Protestant reformers. We will continue Luther a little bit more after we have had some coffee. So let's have coffee. 15 minutes. We'll come back and we will, yeah, we will take church history to the present day. Okay. Okay, everyone, we're just going to make a start again. Um, final hour. We're on, we're in the year 1529. So we've got, what have we got? Like, uh, do some maths. We've got 400, and, yeah, 500, just short of 500 years to go in an hour. Okay, right. See how we go. Hope you got some coffee. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, basically, we'll be chatting about Luther. Now, basically, Luther's biggest contribution to Christianity is, was the answers he gave to four basic questions, okay? First question that Luther answered was, how is a person saved? Luther's answer was, not by works, but by faith alone. Up to that point, the church had been saying it's faith and works. Luther says, no, it's just faith alone. The second question Luther answered was, where does religious authority lie? Luther's answer was, not in the visible institution called the church, but in the word of God found in the Bible. Okay, so Luther's saying, no, no, it's not the church is the authority, it's the Bible is the ultimate authority. Okay, up to that point, they've been saying the church was the ultimate authority. The third question Luther answered is, what is the church? And Luther's answer to that question was, it's the whole body of Christian believers since all are priests before God. Okay, so there's not, this, there's not this barrier between priests are special and there's everyone else. He said, no, we're all 
God's children. We're all followers of Jesus. We're all, that's the priesthood of all believers, really. We're all priests in that sense. And the fourth question Luther answered was, what is the essence of Christian living? And his answer was serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained and lay. So again, he just got rid of this whole differentiation between priests and normal people. and said, no, no, we're, we're, we can all be involved in this. We're all on the level level plan. The last question was serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. Those, the answers to those four questions um, are the biggest contribution Luther made to Christianity. Because he, he changed the answers. Well, he rediscovered the answers of those questions. Now, Luther is so important because he pretty much came along and said to the church, I've read the Bible and it says you've been doing it all wrong for the last a thousand years. Okay, that's pretty much what he said. But what's more, for a thousand years, European society had been built on the established church. So he wasn't just taking on the church, but he was taking on the entire European establishment at that time. Now that takes some serious guts, doesn't it? I think we all agree that. And that is why Luther, despite not being the perfect guy, goes down as one of the most important people in history. Now, around, this, around the time of Luther, um, <coughs> a group arose who believed Luther didn't go far enough in his reforms. And as they read their Bibles, they realized that people in the Bible were baptized as believers. Okay? They were baptized as adults, not as babies, as was common practice then. This whole kind of practice of baptizing babies had developed way back. The first people started to do it in about the hundreds, and by third century it became common practice in the church. And what these people did was they, they said, well, we don't see this in the Bible. So they stopped baptizing their babies and started baptizing adults upon profession of faith. And because of this, they were given the name Anabaptists, which means rebaptizer. But they were severely persecuted for doing this because this was, I mean, there's, there's radical and then there's uber radical. These guys were uber radicals. Okay. And because of this, they were severely persecuted. And in Zurich, um, in Switzerland, on the 5th of January, 1527, the first Anabaptist, Felix Mansur's name, was executed. And guess, the, guess what the method was that they chose to execute him? Drowning. Drowning. Yes, they said, you want water? We'll give you water. So they drown him in the main river in Zurich. He was the first Anabaptist martyr. And over the years... <clears throat> Um, many more, we think four to 5,000 Anabaptists were executed for believing in believers' baptism during the Reformation period. <laughs> now, the Anabaptists, yep, question? Interesting, uh, interesting thought about, uh, what did Martin Luther think about that? Yeah, Martin Luther did not believe in, in believers' baptism. He believed in infant baptism. Um, I'm not so clear on what he believed about them, but he certainly wouldn't have been in favor of them. Now, whether he was in favor of them being killed, I, I don't know, but I would doubt it. I would doubt it, but um, yeah, he certainly didn't agree with Martin Luther was infant baptism. Um, definitely, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the Anabaptists believed in discipleship. You know, being a Christian involves a daily walk with Jesus. They believed in congregational leadership of church. They believed in separation of church and state. They believe, all these things are kind of things that we kind of take for granted today. But these things were revolutionary at the time. And many Anabaptists paid for these beliefs with their lives. Now, after Luther, John Calvin is the second most kind of important person in the Reformation. Now, John Calvin <coughs> was a, a French university scholar. 
who around the time the Anabaptists were being martyred, he got saved and devoted his life to the Protestant cause in France. Now, after fleeing Paris in 1533, he settled in the Swiss city of Basel. And in March 1536, he published a book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. Now, this is the the clearest explanation of Protestant doctrine that the Reformation age produced. And it made 27-year-old John Calvin instantly famous across Europe overnight. Now, not long after, he had to flee again. And he ended up in the Swiss city of Geneva. (coughs) There he was made professor of sacred scriptures. And and, and when he was there, he set about making Geneva into a Protestant city. So he wrote a confession of faith that everyone had to sign who wanted to be a citizen of Geneva. And he set up a rigorous program of moral discipline for everyone in the city. So he's almost making this into this like ideal model city. (coughs) Now Calvin established what is called reformed the reformed tradition of christianity now he and luther pretty much agreed on almost all things but what they did was they just kind of emphasized things a little bit different so they they just placed emphasis on on different things so luther always emphasized justification by faith we're made right by god by faith calvin on the other hand he often emphasized the sovereignty of god you know the fact that god is in control and has a purpose And Calvin focused a lot on the doctrine of predestination, this whole idea from Ephesians that God chooses to save people. And he considered it a deep source of of kind of confidence and humility. Now, Calvin was also really into bringing the kingdom of God to earth. He believed that Christians should aspire to holiness and live upright lives, which is what he tried to put in place in Geneva. Now, many people came from across Europe to see Calvin's Geneva and how he did things and how he set things up. And they exported his ideas back to their homelands. And it spread to France. That was one place it spread to. Now, French Calvinists became known by the name Huguenots. That was the name that French Calvinists were given, Huguenots. And they included many of the elites of French society. And basically, they were in the process of moving France to become a completely Protestant country. And they probably would have achieved that until one day in 1572, thousands of Huguenots, the most influential Huguenots, were all brutally killed by a Catholic mob. This day became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Now, but for this day, France would probably now be a Protestant country. But as it stands, it is a very Catholic country today. So a huge day. Calvinism also took root in the Netherlands and in Scotland under a firebrand preacher called John Knox. And by the 1560s, Scotland had become the most Calvinist country in the world under Knox's leadership. The effect of Calvinism can still be seen in the fact that the Netherlands and Scotland are still Protestant countries even to this day. Now we're going to get on to talk about England. Hooray! Hooray for England. Right. So around this time, uh, the Reformation arrived in England in quite an unusual way. Most of you probably know because you'll have learned about it in history in school. Um, In 1525, the king, Henry VIII, wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry a younger woman called Anne Boleyn. 
The only person who could grant a divorce, though, was the Pope. So Henry asked the Pope to declare his marriage to Catherine invalid. The Pope said no. Henry was pretty peeved. <coughs> and so instead, he got an English court to declare his marriage to Catherine null and void. And in 1533, he married Anne Boleyn. The Pope responded, as you'd expect, by excommunicating Henry. Though Henry didn't seem too bothered, though. And he just passed a law making him the head of the church in England instead of the Pope. Never one to miss an opportunity. Now, apart from replacing the Pope with himself as the head of the church, Henry didn't really change any of the church's belief in England or theology or practice. He pretty much kept the church the same. <clears throat> so in this sense, the Reformation principles hadn't arrived in England yet. The only two things he did change was he closed down lots of English monasteries and took their land for himself. So he got himself a bit richer through it. And the second thing he did was he published an English Bible for use in churches. Now, that had never been done before. Up to that point, it had been forbidden to do that, illegal. You could lose your life for that. Now, the way that Henry came to publish an English Bible was an interesting story. Okay, so the, the pioneer of the translation of the Bible into English was a guy called William Tyndale. You may have heard of him. He translated the Bible into English on the continent because it was too dangerous to do it in England. And in the 1520s, he started smuggling copies of an English Bible back into England from the continent. <clears throat> but obviously, he wasn't allowed to do that. And eventually, the authorities, the English authorities, caught up with him, imprisoned him, and executed him for translating the Bible into English. His dying prayer before he was executed was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Let him see that we, that, that, open his eyes so that he will allow an English translation of the Bible. And it wasn't long until Tyndale's prayer was answered. A year after Tyndale's death, someone made some edits to his translation and, of the Bible and republished it. The Archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, gets this new translation, comes, says to King Henry that he should authorize this Bible for use in all English churches. And Henry's like, okay, let's do it only a year after Tyndale was executed for translating the Bible into English. And that was it. The Bible was named the Great Bible and it was put into all the churches in England. Now, apparently the sudden access to the Bible for, for people for the first time caused so much excitement that Henry had to issue new regulations limiting the reading of the Bible to wealthy merchants and aristocrats. It was getting people too excited. That's crazy. I love that. Yeah. Um, but this was a huge development. Before the Bible was only available in Latin. So only the clergy could read it. Now everyone had access to the Bible. Or almost everyone. Well, Henry's regulations. Now, before long, a new movement began in England. They were called the Puritans. Now, the Puritans basically took seriously what they read in the Bible and tried to live their lives by it. They believed you, you had to have a, a conversion experience to become a Christian. You weren't just baptized as a baby into it. They believed the Bible was a guidebook to live your life by. And they believed in trying to construct a society based on the Bible. Sounds a lot like what you and I believe. Because it is. Yeah, they were precursors to what you, you and I believe. In 1604, the Puritans, they asked the king, King James, for a new translation of the Bible. James is like, okay. So he authorizes a new Bible and it's called the King James Version, yeah. But life began to get difficult for the Puritans in England. They were persecuted for their beliefs by the, established, uh, the establishment. So <clears throat> in the early 1600s, a group of them moved to Holland. 
Now, this group just couldn't find babies getting baptized anywhere in the Bible, so they started baptizing believers, adults, instead. And in 1609, their pastor baptized himself and his congregation of 40, and they became the first Baptist church. In 1620, 20 years later, another group of Puritans set sail from England in a ship called the Mayflower. Anyone want to guess where they went to? America. Yes, they were the first European settlers. Well, first, yeah, we kind of declare them as the first European settlers. There are probably people before, but first European settlers. And there they were able to live according to their beliefs without being persecuted by the authorities. Now, the Catholic Church did fight back against the Reformation across Europe with what became known as the Counter-Reformation. Not the most original name, but you can see what it is, the Counter-Reformation. What they did was they addressed a number of the issues within the Catholic Church, the problems or the abuses, and they also formed the Jesuit movement. Now, the Jesuits were kind of like Catholic super-missionaries. They were like, you know, like the SAS of Catholic mission. These were the guys that were well-trained Catholic missionaries who were intensely loyal to the Pope. And they promised, part of the, when they becoming a Jesuit, there was a promise to go wherever the Pope would send them. Pope sends me to the other side of the world, I'll go. That was part of their promise. So what they did was they halted the growing tide of Protestantism in France and Central Europe. And they were also very influential at the Catholic Church Council of Trent in 1545, which basically reiterated all the core Catholic doctrines, such as saints, confession, indulgences, all these things. They said, no, no, we're reiterating these. We're keeping these. Now, what Council of Trent did is it also rejected everything from the Reformation. It said all those Protestants were rejecting all of that. And what that did was it ensured that there would be no accommodation with the Protestants. There would be no kind of, let's just join together. There would be no kind of, you know, Catholic church just caving in and everyone becoming Protestant. But what Trent ensured that there would be a permanent divided church. Catholic on the one side, Protestant on the other. But this uh, Catholic resurgence wasn't only being felt in Europe. About 20 years before the Reformation began in 1492, Christopher Columbus landed in what we know today as the West Indies. Now, historians describe the next 150 years after this as the Age of Discovery, as Europeans, mainly Catholic, Spanish and Portuguese, conquered the Americas. In 1521, the great Aztec Empire in Mexico was defeated. And in 1533, the Incas had been defeated too. Now, the Spanish uh, and Portuguese conquerors felt it was their obligation, not just to like, take over land, but they felt it was their obligation to spread the word of God also. So they would not only bring armies and guns, but they'd also bring priests and missionaries to evangelize the so-called newly conquered people groups. Now, they would evangelize them into the Catholic faith. Now, it's important to understand that this all happened during the lifetime of Martin Luther. So like, this is, Martin Luther's stuff's all going on in Germany, and this is happening in Central and South America at the same time. So on one hand, while Catholicism was under threat in Europe, it was gaining loads of new converts in the Americas, but also in India, Japan, China, as Portuguese trading ships reached these places and brought Catholic missionaries with them. Though, particularly in Central and South America, the the methods used to convert people was um, somewhat questionable, shall we say, Um, More often than not, Spanish soldiers would just turn up, point their guns at a group of indigenous people and pretty much say, convert to Christianity or we'll shoot you. 
You know, so that was, that was what they did more often than not. So it's not exactly the methodology Jesus had in mind uh, when he called for us to make disciples of all nations, really. So it was dubious, to say the least, how a lot of these people groups, were con- a lot of these people groups converted to Christianity. So just in conclusion in this third period, so the Reformation rediscovered the authority of the Bible, which had been lost for a thousand years. And so many of the things we take for granted as believers today were rediscovered during the Reformation. And, and these, these rediscoveries came at a great cost to many people. The Reformation started quite simply because people started to read the Bible again. That's how it started. And, you know, I was just, as I was preparing this, I was just looking at my Bible as it was sitting on the table next to me. And I was thinking, you know, I think what I've learned from this is um, people give their lives to give me this Bible in English, and I just thought, I should probably read it more, shouldn't I? <laughs> I should probably read it more. It's the best way to honor what they did for us. So the Reformation teaches us, if it teaches us anything, it should be, read this book. That's what it teaches us. Okay, so this brings us to the end of the Reformation era, 1517 to 1648. <clears throat> We're now going to look at the final section. I promise it's a bit shorter. Um, which is the modern church, so, four, so 1648 to the present day, where we're going to see incredible missionary endeavor and revivals. But before we see that, in, in the mid-1600s, a new movement begun. It was called the Enlightenment. Now, it was a completely new way of looking at God, the world, and oneself, which led to the start of secularism, this whole idea that we don't need religion. <laughs> now, the Middle Ages and the Reformation, there'd been lots of d- disagreements between people, but there'd been ages of faith. Like, everyone generally believed in God. They just disagreed over how that was worked out. Whereas the Enlightenment just rejected that whole idea of believing God. Reason replaced faith as the most important thing. And Enlightenment thinking kind of grew from these three areas. It grew from the Renaissance, which birthed this real confidence in man and his powers about what he could achieve. Also, it grew from the fact that people just got really sick of religious conflicts. You know, these wars between Protestants and Catholics, and everyone's just like, I'm just tired of all this bloodshed. So that helped enlighten the, the Enlightenment. And also what helped the Enlightenment was the rise of science and discovery. So people discovered then that the sun was the center, not the earth, of, of the solar system. And that the sun emitted a magnetic force that moved the planets. It's not the earth. And the, you know, someone made a telescope and now they could see the planets and gravity was discovered. And these discoveries all turned people's worldviews on their heads. And they created this new belief in human reason. You know, the whole idea that we can figure this whole thing out ourselves without God began to grow. And what happened is lots of people came to kind of start to criticize the church. But unlike before, they didn't criticize it from within inside the church. They criticized it from outside. These were people who just didn't believe in God, weren't part of the church, and they criticized it from outside. And this was a huge shift in worldview. Generally, people had always believed in God, but now this was changing. Now, a bit of a gear change. Um, on the European continent around this time, uh, a movement... Um, began called pietism. Now, pietists believed in personal faith, Bible study, evangelism, and moving away from state churches to fellowships of those who have living faith in God. Now, one man influenced by the pietist was a guy called Nicholas Count von Zinzendorf. 
And he allowed, great name, isn't it? He allowed a group of pietists to live on his land and they formed a kind of almost monastic community without the celibacy and they you know, prayed lots and really lived for each other and looked after each other. And they, be- they became na- known as the Moravians. And they had a real focus on prayer. And um, if many of you know the modern day 24-7 prayer movement led by Pete Gregg. They, have, they get a lot of their inspiration from the Moravians. Now, the Moravians had an intense missionary desire, and they sent missionaries all over the world. Pietism has shaped much of how we live out our Christian faith today. Now, someone who was influenced by the Pietists <coughs> was a Church of England minister called John Wesley. Um, Wesley started a movement in England called Methodism. Now, what was revolutionary about this movement was that it was a movement of the people. It was like lay people got together to start praying, reading their Bible, discipling each other, and evangelizing people. It was a movement of the people. He was encouraging people to take responsibility to step up and do things themselves and not just wait on the clergy to do it. Now, Wesley studied at Oxford, and him and his brother Charles formed this little group at Oxford who took their faith seriously. So they read their Bible, they prayed, and, and they, really, they really they took their faith seriously. And because of that, people ridiculed them giving them kind of mocking names such as um, Bible Moths, Reforming Club, that was another name they were given. And one of the nicknames they were given, a derogatory nickname, was Methodists. Methodists is one of the names they were given, and the Methodist name stuck. Now, after being ordained, Wesley was asked to become the vicar of a church in America. He went over there, and as a vicar, he was really strict, a really strict vicar. And his strictness was, was unpopular, really unpopular amongst his congregation in America. <coughs> and around that time, John Wesley actually had an affair with a woman in his congregation. Um, but then she left him um, and married another guy. And he was really peeved about this. So he tried to get her back. And, you know, when you're a vicar, you've got some, you know, tools at your disposal to get people back. And so what he did was he decided to bar her from having communion in church. So he basically wouldn't allow her to have communion. Um, So um, her new husband then sued John Wesley over this. He says, look, that's not right. And then there was a long trial. It was a big mess. And he returned to England in February 1738 with a tail between his legs, just kind of embarrassed and broken by the whole thing. A few months later, he, he has this just this moment, this kind of Holy Spirit moment where he just realizes, just, he has assurance. He just has this assurance that who he is in Christ. And it's a real transforming moment for, it, for him. And after this, and also due to the encouragement of his friend, fellow preacher George Whitfield, Wesley starts preaching the gospel just everywhere he can. This was a big moment for him. Starts preaching wherever he could. Indoors, outdoors, on mountains, in fields, wherever people would listen, he would preach the gospel. So he goes back to his old church and asks, can he preach the gospel there? Can he preach? And they say, no, you're not preaching here. You're not allowed to. So he just goes into the graveyard of the church, finds his dad's grave, stands on his dad's gravestone and preaches to hundreds of people in the church graveyard. That's the kind of stuff he did. He would just preach wherever. Now it's estimated in his lifetime, Wesley covered 250,000 miles on horseback around the country, just preaching the gospel to people. Now, as I mentioned before, John Wesley, he was a great guy, wasn't easy to be married to, apparently. He did get married after two years, his wife left him, just never there, you know. So he just, yeah, wasn't the easiest guy to be married to. Um, so he wasn't perfect. He did great things, wasn't perfect. By the time he died, there were 79,000 Methodists in England and 40,000 in America. 
Now, while all this was happening in England, a spiritual awakening was happening in America, too, called the Great Awakening. It began in the 1720s when some pastors in New Jersey and Pennsylvania started seeing lots of conversions. And it then spread to Virginia and the Carolinas and eventually to Massachusetts. And the Great Awakening turned into a full-on revival when, in 1739, an English preacher and friend of John Wesley, George Whitfield, came across from England and did <coughs> a preaching tour around the New England states. Before long, 25, up to 50,000 people had got saved in the New England states of America alone. And this led to a series of further revivals and awakenings in America and back in the UK over the next 150 years. Now, despite the beginnings of the Enlightenment, revivals in England and America meant that thousands of people came to Christ in the 1700s. And this missionary focus would increase in the 1800s, as well as a new focus on social justice. Now, in the 1700s, um, a small group of influential Christian leaders... Actually, if you're in your notes, we're now on the bit 1789 to 1914. That's just if you're in your notes, okay? Uh, are, we all, are we all doing okay? Yeah. We're getting tired now. I can, I can feel it. It's, it's been a long morning. Um, in the 1700s, a, a small group of influential Christian leaders began uh, regularly getting together in the small village of, of Clapham, just outside London, to discuss what was wrong with the world and what they could do about it. And they were led by an MP called... William Wilberforce, yes. This group uh, began to tackle lots of issues, the most famous of which was slavery. Now, in 1770, of the 100,000 slaves that were annually transported from West Africa, Britain was transporting half of them. Now, many people in Britain made a lot of money from it. And in 1789, Wilberforce began campaigning to end slavery. And for over 40 years... He tirelessly campaigned for the end of slavery and um, until on the 25th of July, 1833, Parliament passed the Emancipation Act, freeing all slaves in the Christian empire. Wilberforce died four days later. Now, this is hugely significant because European powers were just about to carve up Africa and be like, right, you take this bit, I'll take this bit, I'll take this bit. And Wilberforce and his friends doing this and ending slavery meant that no part uh, that was controlled by Britain would have any slavery in it. If this hadn't have happened, it doesn't bear thinking about what would happen. Wilberforce and his friends were motivated by their Christian faith to fight against injustice and stand up for the oppressed and the poor. And, and poverty in England, it was, it, was a, it was a big problem at this time. Many Christians, such as George Muller and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, set up orphanages this time to rescue destitute street children. <coughs> Poverty was particularly bad in London. In London in, in 1890, it was recorded that 2,157 people had been found dead in one year. 2,297 people had committed suicide. 30,000 people in London in 1890 were living in prostitution. And 160,000 people had been convicted of drunkenness. And more than 900,000 people in London were classed as paupers, pretty much urban poor. A man named uh, William Booth was drawn to help London's poor. And his street preaching in the 1880s saw many get saved. And with 11 years, he, he started these stations doing kind of preaching, evangelism and helping the poor in London. And uh, within 11 years, he had 32 of them going in London. As workers organized, a bit like an army, they're really organized, so soon they were given the name the Salvation 
army. And William Booth was given the name General Booth. And by the late 1800s, he had established a thousand of these preaching stations that helped the poor and sent people to many other countries. Now, the 1800s also saw the growth of the Christian missionary movement. Okay, so a little bit of alert. One of the little pictures is about to come up. I'm going to talk about it. Okay, so now the guy who started this missionary movement was a guy called William Carey. He's been described as the father of the modern day missionary movement. Now, Kerry was a shoemaker. He wasn't educated. He wasn't from a rich family. And what he did was he learned Greek and Hebrew in his work breaks um, as a cobbler. Um, and what he also had is he had a map of the world on his work table so he could look at countries where he wanted to go and share the gospel. <coughs> now, in the late 1700s, people, Christians didn't believe that they should take the gospel to foreign lands. People just thought they're heathens out there. We're just going to leave them be. God's going to judge them. That's generally what people thought in church in England in the late 1700s. Um, at one Baptist minister's, minister's meeting in late 1700s, William Carey stood up and argued that we should send missionaries to these countries and tell people about Jesus. And apparently one older minister sa- says, young man, after he said this, he says, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So William Carey had to sit down. But that was a general attitude that there was in the church. In 1792, he published a book called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Not the shortest book title in the world, okay? I could give him some advice in trying to short that. But in it, basically, he knocked down the five objections people had then to taking the gospel to the the world. Distance, barbarism, danger, difficulties of support, and language. And he basically said, just got rid of all those arguments. He said, look, they're all rubbish. We've got to go. A year later, a year after publishing this, he starts his own missionary society. And in the first sermon at his missionary society, he says this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he immediately leaves for India, goes to the city Serampore, and he's there for 25 years. In those 25 years, he produces six complete translations of the Bible and 25 partial translations into new languages. And many, many, many more people were inspired by him to follow his steps and become missionaries. And that's why he started the modern day missionary movement. Now, before Kerry, churches in England just weren't bothered about foreign mission. It was just not on anybody's radar, okay, at all. After Kerry, supporting foreign missions became part of normal church life. Everyone collected money to send to the missionaries and you would call people and they would send missions. He completely changed the faiths of the missionary movement. Kerry changed the whole outlook towards foreign mission. He put the gospel back to the center and unified Christendom around reaching the lost. Now the 17 and 1800s saw this move away from the clergy doing everything <coughs> to average people stepping up and preaching the gospel, looking after the poor and fighting for justice. We are up to the final little section. I'm still managing to speak. I haven't lost my voice. I haven't managed to cough too much. We've got there. We've got half an hour left, which is more than enough time. Um, so, the final section is from 1914. Anyone want to tell me what happened in 1914? Yeah. World War I started, and we're going we're gonna to take this to the present day. Has anyone got any questions, actually, before we, before we move on? Sorry, I haven't really asked that much. 
If there are no questions, we'll move on. You're very welcome to come and talk to me afterwards if you do have any, any questions. Um, yeah. Well, you've got Hudson Taylor as well, um, which, yeah, it's getting one of the people I've just cut because I just don't have time. But, yeah, Hudson Taylor was very influential. But, yeah, Kerry started the whole idea that we should go to places that aren't Christian. And then off the back of that, people went to countries that were not India, went to other countries as well. So, yeah, it did come off the back of it. Hudson Taylor was hugely important in going to China. Um, but I've just mentioned Kerry because he was the instrumental one in just kicking the whole thing off, really. Yeah. Good. Right. Are we ready to go? 1914. Okay. Okay. So the the first half of the of the 20th century saw severe persecution of Christians by by nationalism and communism. Okay. So for the first time, for 500 years. It didn't actually matter if you were Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox. The people doing the persecution, they didn't care about any of that. You got persecuted all the same. Okay? Per- persecution was particularly brutal in Stalin's Soviet Union, which the, the main kind of branch of Christianity would have been Orthodox belief, and also in Nazi Germany, which would have been Protestant and Catholic. And in the early 1900s, um, this, there's, there's this kind of idea began to kind of grow. It was, it's the liberal idea of... Um, of the good of man and progress. This had been kind of growing in strength. People, started, people began to believe that the more educated and cultured people become, the more society would progress to the point where wars would no longer happen and religion would no longer be needed. This kind of idea started to grow in the early 1900s. This idea grew until the First and Second World Wars happened which basically smashed it to pieces. These were the bloodiest conflicts the world had ever known, and they happened not amongst primitive peoples in the distant past, but in the developed world of the 20th century. 85 million people died in World War II alone, which was 3% of the entire world population back then. Now, the idea of the progress of man was pretty much dead, Um, and the aftermath of the Second World War left people with many questions. If... If man was supposed to be progressing and improving morally, like, why had all this happened? Why had so many people been killed? Like, how could human beings do this to other human beings? People were looking for answers. They were looking for hope. And two figures played really important roles in providing this hope after the Second World War. One was English writer C.S. Lewis, and the other was American evangelist Billy Graham. Now, Lewis in a series of lectures on the BBC just after the Second World War, renewed people's hope after the disillusionment of the Second World War by basically pointing them to Jesus. It's a series of lectures pointing people to Jesus. And these lectures were soon turned into a book, and that book is called Mere Christianity. It's one of C.S. Lewis's main biggest books. Fantastic book. A bestseller even today. Fantastic book. Now, around this time, uh, American evangelist Billy Graham, um, just after the Second World War, began large-scale preaching tours, eventually filling stadiums of people right across the world who came to hear him preach. And he called these tours crusades. Yeah, I don't know why he did that. But anyway, he called them crusades. Um, Yeah, he went with that. And... um, But over the next 60 years, he held over 400 of these crusades, preaching to 215 million people in person in 185 countries across the world, as well as to over a billion people through TV and radio. 
Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in history. And through his ministry, millions of people across the world were saved, which renewed and strengthened the church across the world. Okay, So that's why Billy Graham gets on our little list of nine pictures. Okay, Now, the post-war era also saw reforms in the Catholic Church. Now, in 1958, the Pope called a church council called Vatican II with the aim of bringing the Catholic Church up to date. Now, many changes came as a result of Vatican II. One of them was that the altar in Catholic churches was brought forward towards the congregation, closer to the people. Priests now faced the congregation when delivering mass instead of having their backs to the congregation. And services could now be conducted in people's own language instead of in Latin, which had been the case up to that point. These were big changes for the Catholic Church. Now, in the 60s and 70s, the rise of secularism, this whole kind of rejection of religion, began to hit traditional Protestant denominations pretty hard, kind of Presbyterian, Methodist, um, (coughs) Episcopal churches pretty hard. And church attendance in many of these denominations started to plummet during this time. But by contrast, during this time, Evangelical churches, so that's churches centered on the gospel of salvation by grace, as well as charismatic and Pentecostal churches actually flourished during this time. They grew loads. And when these churches were asked why they thought they were growing, they generally responded with three answers. First answer was that that they were being faithful to the Bible. Second one was giving solid answers to life's big questions. And the third answer was being efficiently organized. They kind of give these three answers as this is why we are growing and flourishing. That was their answers to that. During this time, mega churches also started to emerge, particularly in America. Large churches with great facilities and programs, often seeking to, to, be, to, be, to be more relevant to those not familiar uh, with church. The 1960s also saw a charismatic renewal where lots of people rediscovered many of the gifts of the Spirit, such as healing, prophecy, and speaking in tongues. And our our denomination that CCM is part of, New Frontiers, kind of came out of this movement in the 60s. But it wasn't the first great move of the Spirit in the 20th century. The, The Azusa Street Revival is in LA, Los Angeles, in 1909, so the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement. The vineyard movement, led by John Wimber in the 1980s, also had a big impact, particularly in the era of healing, on the Western church as well. Pentecostals and charismatics now make up a quarter of all Christians in the world today. Now, we've spent most of our time this morning, up to this point, looking at Christianity in Europe. But we must now face the fact that Europe is no longer the center of Christianity anymore. I mean, that is just fact. And it's not even America either. The 20th century has seen a global shift of Christianity to the south and east of the world. There's more Christians now, more Christians now worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than in all the Anglican churches of Britain, Europe, and North America combined. There are more Baptists in the Congo now than there are in Great Britain. In Africa, in the, in the continent of Africa, in 1900, there were 10 million Christians, which was a popula- percentage of about 9% of the overall population. In 2000, there are, in 2000, there were 380 million Christians, which is 46% of the population of the African continent. In South Korea, in 1914, one in 100 people were Christians. Now it's one in three. South Korea is now home to the world's biggest churches. 
Yoido Full Gospel Church in South Korea is the world's biggest church. has a million, one million members. Okay, one million members. South Korea is also second only to USA for the number of theological colleges it has and the number of missionaries it sends out. In China, the rate of Christian growth is just astonishing. I mean, really is astonishing. There are now more people in church on Sunday in China than there are in all of Western Europe combined. If the Christian growth rate in China continues at its current levels, in 10 years, it will have more Christians than any other country in the world, USA included. Now, in China, a movement began um, in the 20th century called the Back to Jerusalem movement. And basically, this, uh, the idea is this, that um, when Christianity started back in kind of Jerusalem, it kind of went east. So as we saw earlier with a map, it went east, went towards Rome, and then went, went to Europe, went to Britain, then went from Britain over to America, and basically went east around the globe till it got to China. And basically, there's a big movement in China, which... West. West. Oh, west. I'm saying, I'm saying east. West, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> At least some of you are listening. Yeah. West. I keep saying east. Went west the whole way around to China. And what this movement in China wants to do is basically to complete the circle, to go from China back to Jerusalem. Um, and what they want to do is they want to send missionaries to all the countries between China and Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of countries there who really don't like people getting saved and becoming Christians. This is the Middle East. Okay, we've got Saudi Arabia there. We've got Iraq. We've got Iran. We've got Afghanistan. But um, it's interesting that Brother Yun, who um, wrote the book Heavenly Man back in 2003, he basically said they wanted to send 100,000 missionaries from China to the 51 countries in this region and evangelize them. Take the Bible, take Christianity to these areas. That's what they want to do. Okay, so things have changed. Okay, the center of Christianity has moved. It is not in Europe anymore. Sometimes we can despair a bit at the, you know, the, the, the state of the church and think, gosh, it's not like that everywhere. Okay. Now, Christianity is also growing, and I'll finish with this, it's growing in the Muslim world as well, in the Middle East. David Garrison, in his book, uh, Wind in the House of Islam, he, um, he descri- describes something called a movement. He calls a movement, a movement is when either a thousand people in an area become Christians and get baptized, or a hundred new churches are planted in an area. He says, if one of those happen, that's what's called a movement, a movement to Christ, all right? Now, he says, he's charted this, he says that between 1622, so Islam started in, 1570, uh, in 570, between 622 and 1800, so that's a period of like 1,200 years, from 622 to 1800, there were zero movements to Christ in the Middle East and Muslim world, okay? North Africa and Middle East, that world. He says between 1800 and 1980, a period of of 180 years, there were two movements to Christ during that period. Two, two, Two instances were in some area in the Muslim world, Middle East, North Africa, either a thousand people got saved and baptized, Muslim believers got saved and baptized, or a hundred churches were planted. That happened twice, between 1800 and 1980. He says that between 1980 and the year 2000, there were 11 movements to Christ in the Middle East and North Africa. And then he says, from between 2000 and 2013, in 13 years, there have been 69 movements to Christ in that period. And what he says from his research, he says something is happening in the Muslim world. Muslims are becoming Christians at a fast rate. 
Why are so many Muslims coming to Christ in the Middle East, North Africa, that whole kind of Muslim world? Well, a few reasons. The Bible is now, tra- is now available in the language of most Muslim people groups. It wasn't before. Many Muslims are now experiencing dreams and visions pointing them to Jesus. Access to Christian media has also had a big impact. So most Muslims, even though they don't have access maybe to church, they can just hook up and watch some Christian TV or videos or stuff like that. Also, there's more recently been a lot of the the cultural baggage that has traditionally accompanied the gospel has been removed. So in the past, people would evangelize in those areas. And there there were as much trying to convert people to being American than they were to being Christians. But they've changed that. They've got rid of all that cultural baggage and they're just presenting the gospel. So that's helped as well. And also, there's there's become widespread disillusionment in the Middle East with Muslim extremism and, and the violence. And that has played a factor as well. So Christianity, 20th century, 21st century, it is spreading. It is growing. We may not see it as much in our country, but it is growing faster than ever across this world. People are getting saved at 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 an astonishing rate. Churches are being planted. So it is encouraging what, what is happening. It's in a good place. So there you have it. That is the history of the church. Warts and all, and there's a lot of warts. Um, but, you know, for me, I think, I think for me, just over this last week's months, um, doing the preparation for this, it's just reminded me, like I said at the start, of just how important it is to just keep the gospel, like, at the center, like, of my life, but also the church I lead. Because if you learn anything from church history, is when you don't do that, things get messy. Like, things get messed up. And when you do keep the gospel at the center, people get saved, lives get transformed, nations get transformed. So, I think that's just, I don't know, that's what I take from it, you know, and... And I think what I find so encouraging about what we've studied um, today is that there's no perfect people in this story. You know, sometimes we can be a bit intimidated, be like, oh, yeah, well, he was great. He did this. There's no perfect people in this story. God uses weak and imperfect people to bring about his plan, which is encouraging for us all. And I just want to say it's encouraging us for us because we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play in this story. God has a plan for each of us to do stuff. I was... um, I'm pretty much done, but I'm just rambling now, okay? Um, and we're 15 minutes early, so I can do that. Um, I was sitting on the bus on Wednesday, and uh, I got the what's, the, what's the free newspaper on the bus? Uh, Metro. Metro. I, re- re- I was reading the Metro, and I was just like, oh my goodness, every story is like bad news. Like, it's just like, oh my goodness. Just, uh, and then they put a little puppy dog story in, just to have one good story. But it's just all bad news. And I was just thinking, you know, it can seem... It can, it can just seem like the world is in this awful, awful state and there's just no hope. But I just want to say, look, studying church history over these last months, it's really reminded me that no matter how bad things look, you know, God is still in control. Uh, and he's still, he still has a plan and he's still working it out, even when we can't see it. And I don't know, that just gives me hope, joy. I think, yeah, it's good. So you guys have done fantastic in listening to so much information and dates. You all need to go home and have a sleep, I think. Um, Timeline, come on. Oh no, that wasn't that. Thank you. That wasn't me telling you to clap me. That really wasn't. No, that was me. That was me saying, let's do our, let's finish off our little game. So we have our first four. What were our first four? First four was the... Paul, then we got Rome destroyed, or um, Jerusalem destroyed, <laughs> the canon is closed, Constantine. What is our fifth one? Anyone want to shout out? The 
The church split, yes. Very close to the Crusades. Yeah, the church split happened in 1054. The Crusades began in 1095. So the next one is the Crusades, yeah. What comes after the Crusades? Martin Luther, yeah, 1517. What comes next? <coughs> William Carey goes to India, that's in 1792. And then, what's the final one? Billy Graham starts his crusades in, I think, something like 1946. And there you have, our little game is completed. If you have a look in your notes, there are some further resources. I mean, I very much doubt you want to read any more on this after today. Like, you're just going to want to avoid church history for the rest of... But um, there's some great books there if you do want to read more. Um... Bruce Shelley's book, Church History in Plain Language, is a really good one-volume book if you want to read that. Um, if you want like a really good big history, um, Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, that's a five-volume set. That's brilliant. Um, Rodney Stark, he's written his Rise of Christianity. That book, that's got all the statistics about Christian growth. That's what's really good about that one. Also, Rodney Stark, he does this chapter on like what it was like to live in Antioch in the first century. And like, oh my goodness, it is so good. You feel you are living in it. It's so good. So it's like worth the money for that. Um, Tim Dowley's Introduction to the History of Christianity. Honestly, I haven't read that, but it's got this really good timeline, which is color-coded and has everything in it. So I really like that. So you can just buy that book for the timeline. It's a lot of fun. And um, if you just want like a really simple book to read, super easy, Rick Cornish's Five-Minute Church Historian is that book, okay? He wrote it for his teenage sons. So it just explains church history so simply, real easy to read. 